Step one, get better at reframing problems. There's that quote attributed to Einstein. If I had 60 minutes to solve a problem, I'd spend the first 55 minutes determining the proper question to ask. That's enormously valuable just to pause on. What's the nature of the problem? What problem am I actually trying to solve? Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Can you train yourself to become more creative? Or more importantly, can you train your brain to become more creative? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins and welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. And that's the question I wanted to answer in this week's interview. Now, as a writer, I've often considered what are the different things or strategies that I can use to get into a state of creative flow faster. And for me, the biggest one is eliminating distractions. So right now I'm working or finalizing edits to a parenting book. And I find that it takes me, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to get into the right frame of mind for editing this particular parenting book. Because uh, if I get distracted, you know, by one of the kids at the, at the door or by noise downstairs or by the postman calling or by 101 other things going on in the house, it takes me, you know, another few minutes to get back into editing the book and I might just put it off and do something else altogether. So what do I do? Well, I eliminate as many notifications on my computer as possible. I also put my phone in a different room. And I'm a big believer in the Pomodoro technique. So I use the app Freedom, which disables access to distracting websites and social media. And I set a timer for 25 to 30 minutes. And I use that to focus on editing one particular chapter in the book. Then when the timer sounds, I'll take a two to three minute break. I usually go downstairs and make a cup of tea. I tend to drink a lot of tea when I'm stressed or when I'm editing. And then I'll come back upstairs, turn the timer on again, and go for another 30 minutes. And I'll do this three or four times. And once I've got four sessions in for today, I'll typically move on and do something else. You know, I might go for a run or I might meditate. And that's actually something we talk about in this week's podcast interview. Or I might even go for, you know, a nap or I'll just work on some part of the business that's not necessarily explicitly creative. And I find that this helps me focus and this helps me manage distractions. Now, that's just me. Perhaps there are other things that are distracting you, but I would encourage you to think about what ways are you training your brain to respond to distractions that are taking you away from your writing and what ways are you training your brain so that you can focus on, you know, your manuscript or on your first draft. Now, in this week's podcast interview, I interviewed Phil Dobinson. He's the author of The Brain Book, and he runs the popular website Brainworks, which offers a number of different courses, all about training yourself to become more creative and productive. And there are a number of approaches that he recommends people use. Meditation is one, and I meditate once or twice a day, and I find it acts like a mental reset. Managing distractions is another, which is why I talked about how I manage distractions at the start of the show. Phil is also a trained hypnotherapist, and funnily enough, I've actually had hypnotherapy as well myself uh, over the past 12 months or so, which has helped me manage getting through the pandemic and also work on different parts of the business. And that's something we talk about in this week's podcast interview. Uh, Phil also explains how people can develop resilience and how we can work smarter, but not harder. Uh, Phil also talks about the importance of having a solid early morning or evening routine, and he explains why writers and why creative work can be a little bit challenging and what we should do about it. But before we get over to this week's interview with Phil, if you enjoyed the show, please can you leave a short review on the iTunes store or wherever you're listening, because more reviews and more ratings will help more listeners find the show. Now with that, let's get over to Phil, and I started by asking him to introduce himself and his company, Brainworks. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. And, and thanks for the invitation to be with you today. It's a real pleasure. Um, so, yeah, my name's Phil Dobson. I'm the founder of Brain Workshops and, as you rightly said, author of The Brain Book. So really, I spend my time not writing generally, but instead working with businesses and business leaders, helping them apply what we know about the brain to work smarter, helping them become more productive, more creative and more resilient my journey well i used to be a musician i say it in the past tense and really i still am a musician but i probably used to define myself more in terms of my musical ability and 2007 now so many many years ago i broke my ankle badly and that prompted a pivot and i retrained as a clinical hypnotherapist um set up my practice the following year in moorgate actually just down the road from me in, in east london and started treating people with the sort of things that you can probably imagine right so i was helping people manage their stress helping them improve their sleep change their behaviors and while on the one hand it was incredibly rewarding very stimulating it was amazing it also became very frustrating for me and my frustration wasn't with my clients of course that would be a bit out of order but with the fact that they needed to see a specialist with what are such basic human needs you know, and it kind of got me asking this question of myself, why are we taught so little about our brains? How can we get to the point where, you know, a 40 year old or a 50 year old doesn't know how to sleep? Now, my degree had been psychology. So I felt, I suppose, at that age anyway, at university age, that I'd done what I could to learn about my own mind. But interestingly, you know, my psychology degree was interesting, but I didn't find it particularly valuable. You know, I knew how to condition a dog, but not myself. And studying to be a psychotherapist was a very different experience where I suddenly found myself with this toolkit of techniques and strategies that were helping people transform their lives, you know, in as little as 60 or 90 minutes. And so basically, long story short, I thought, can I deconstruct what I've learned to teach it to other people? Because if everyone knew what I just learned, they would be happier. They wouldn't need to see therapists. And again, it wasn't long after that that I started, started working with businesses. That got me into neuroscience. And again, it's kind of a, you know, a decade now or more of learning about the brain and trying to deconstruct neuroscience and psychological science to become highly applicable in the workplace and consequently having these benefits of productivity, creativity and resilience. Yeah, it's funny you bring up creativity. So last year I actually had a hypnotherapy counselling. It was to do with get, getting a like a breakthrough on my own business. And what I was surprised by was how much personal stuff came up from the hypnotherapy coaching rather than business stuff. But the way the, way the hypnotherapist explained it is uh, it's not like they're separate. You need to get things right personally before you can get them right in your business. Yeah. I found that the, the session's quite helpful. And at the time, I was writing a book about parenting and I was able to use some of the stories or some of the memories he was able to unearth in the parent book so was your experience with hypnosis or hypnotherapy or the sessions perhaps a lot of visualizations and imagineering techniques that were used or then utilized towards outcomes or or what was the experience like yeah i had, I had about 10 sessions and oh, wow. they were kind of going back to a time when you you know you felt a particular way ah, recently okay. and then as as a teenager and then as a child and then what would you say to, to that child? And what would you say to that teenager? And what would you say to yourself now? 
Okay. But I was surprised by how, how uh, skeptical about different things, but I was surprised by how susceptible I was to hypnosis and how much benefit I got from it. Yeah. So I walked away feeling like it was really helpful for me for one, for writing, and two, just for resolving maybe issues that I didn't know were there at the time. Interesting. I mean, I think it has a bad you know, reputation. It's, it's just deeply misunderstood. A lot of people's response to hypnosis or the proposal of hypnotherapy is very much about relinquishing control and about there's almost a fundamental resistance to this idea of someone doing something to you that ultimately gives them greater control over you and i just think that's such a unfortunate way to think about the power of your own mind this idea that being hypnotized it sounds like there's a subject and an object where really any good hypnotist and even that term i don't particularly like is really just a good facilitator of a state in someone else that they're already good at and you having experienced it would probably know that a more practical and accessible definition of hypnosis much like meditation is a state of deep mental absorption that is often also tied with physical relaxation so suddenly that opens it up for people because they realize well number one that doesn't sound so scary and both of those things i'd quite like to get better at because you know in focusing better that's where your productivity even your creativity your performance at work is kind of held your ability to relax physically well that's why we associate these practices with improved immune function and reduced stress and reduced anxiety and you put the two things together and it becomes an exercise in self-mastery and then it's interesting your expectation of this process being around your business and business outcomes and you've actually found it much more enlightening perhaps in terms of your personal narrative and of course if you can get good at one of those two things you know if you sort yourself out the business will likely follow. I forget who it was, a quote around how, you know, you can work hard on your business and you'll make good money. You work hard on yourself and you'll make a fortune. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's similar to how the uh, how the, the culture I was working with explained it. But it, I also, yeah, I didn't feel like I was, or I'd lost control at any point during the session or that I'd given up control. I definitely, you know, felt very aware of what was, what was happening yeah. during the hypnotherapy sessions. But like for me, one of the benefits was creativity, which I think would apply to a lot of people who, who like to write. But I suppose if somebody doesn't have access to that kind of coaching, how would you recommend they train their brain so that they can become more creative or what steps could they take? Great question. Firstly, I think, remember that you are built around creativity. I think a lot of people, because their role doesn't use the word creativity or maybe they're view of themselves excludes the term that we attribute it too readily to other people right we think about creative geniuses or we think about people in creative industries whatever that means where if you think about creativity more in terms of using your imagination solving problems engaging in the counterfactual you know not what is but what might be we are all built that way i mean it's you don't need to spend much time with many children before you see that that's really the default state so firstly remember how creative you are it's how you're built in terms of getting more creative, I think it's really valuable to deconstruct creativity into the process that it's really best understood in. Some people break it into five steps. I think the most practical way, actually, if we're just going to, you know, we haven't got long, break it into three steps. Step one, get better at reframing problems. There's that quote attributed to Einstein. If I had 60 minutes to solve a problem, I'd spend the first 55 minutes determining the proper question to ask. That's enormously valuable just to pause on what's the nature of the problem what problem am i actually trying to solve now that could be relevant yeah. in terms of a business context it could be relevant in terms of a personal problem 
how will I know I've solved the problem? What's stopping me? How do I know it's a problem? What would be the benefits if I did solve this problem? What advice might I give someone else with the same problem? You see, all of that is just examining what you think you know about the problem. So that's a really important step to get better at. In terms of training the brain, it's really more about instilling a practice, deferring for a moment your solution orientation and begin instead by challenging your assumptions and reframing the problem right. Then step two. Step two, now you have permission to do your brainstorm. So idea generation is really, in terms of the literature, explained in terms of divergent thinking. And divergent thinking, as the name suggests, is just coming up with lots of potential ideas or solutions. So the science there is most of the literature actually on creativity tends to focus on this step. So there's an abundance of things that if you go online, you'll find in terms of, you know, work with other people, give it more time, prime your brain, you know, do alternate uses, tests, such as how many different ways can you think of to use a paperclip? It gets your brain thinking laterally. One of the most, I think, potent ways to improve your divergent thinking. So step two is to do what's called shifting your perceptual position. Now, for writers, this is probably more common than you might think. Seeing the problem through the eyes of different characters, quite literally. Edward de Bono yeah. and his thinking hats. Your brain has this amazing ability to examine a problem through different lenses, perceptual positions, or simply perspectives. And again, giving it the time for that. So in a business context, given you've mentioned business, an amazingly valuable technique called the Disney method explores your future. Now, this can be done for anyone who's listening. You think about your goals. You think about your three-year plan, if you have one. Spend 10 minutes examining your future through the eyes of a dreamer. And you give yourself permission to dream. You're entrepreneurial. You've got all the resources in the world. Anything's possible. And go with that. Now, write all that down. Then spend 10 minutes thinking in terms of, okay, based on what's come up, what does the realist make of this? What's the plan? What's the strategy? What would you need to do to make this a reality? Get all that down and then spend 10 minutes through the eyes of a critic. What could go wrong? What could slow you down? What might get in the way and what might the challenges be? You oscillate then between these three perceptual positions, dreamer, realist, critic, the insights. Are you free writing from those perceptions in a journal of some sort? Um, writing it down, yes. Free writing, yeah, not so much in a kind of almost Freudian mind mapping sort of sense. Things will come up that are actually quite explicit. So, and again, this is probably, you know, there will be variants. Some people might like to draw pictures, but generally when you're in the dreamer state, it becomes quite visual as you give yourself that permission to dream. And so you're really creating your vision, I suppose. So you just come down, spend for as long as you're in the state, you'd spend the same amount of time writing down, right? So specifically, I might encourage someone to explore that space for five or 10 minutes and then sit down five or 10 minutes, just write everything in your dreamer on your dream bit of paper. And then you go into realist. Now, normally it helps if you stand up as you occupy the different perceptual positions and then sit back down to capture your notes. It's just an oscillation. Look it up online. The Disney, yeah. There's lots of really valuable resources. So that's the step two, right? Getting your brain to think more laterally, to generate ideas, is about shifting your current state or disrupting it some way. That's a kind of general way of thinking about shifting perspective, giving it time, going for a walk. Again, simple stuff that we know, examining the problem through the lens of someone else. And then step three, this is when convergent thinking happens. Now, that's the kind of I suppose, more scientific term, the way we've all experienced 
this third step is when any of us have had a good idea, <laughs> come in the shower, in a bath, in our sleep, on a walk, on a vacation, when we're a bit drunk. Isn't that fascinating? These creative shots of inspiration seem to happen in an entirely different environment to the environment in which we actually tend to do most of our work. And from a neuroscientific perspective, that's explained very well through both different brain states and neuroanatomy. So divergent thinking, working quite generally, I suppose, if we, if we kind of make some general terms here, tends to involve your frontal lobe, prefrontal cortex, and tends to involve quite a lot of electrical activity measured through brain states or electroencephalograms, right? So your brain's really active, it's doing lots of stuff, you're executing. And then when you have a break, go for a walk, fall asleep, get in the bath, get in the shower, you give your brain time and space. What happens reliably is your brain shifts state. That isn't just experienced kind of, you know, anecdotally, but again, your brainwave frequencies tend to slow down to alpha state. Your frontal lobe becomes less dominant and what's called your default mode network becomes more active, which is more lateral in terms of brain kind of real estate. And that state is the one that we associate repeatedly with aha moments when these flashes yeah. of inspiration seemingly come. So how do you make this practical and applicable? Well, let's summarize what we said. Get better at reframing problems. Before you try and solve anything, examine the nature of the problem. And you do that by asking questions. And other people are always really helpful in that regard. Then get better at divergent thinking, idea generation, like have fun with it. Einstein referred to creativity as intelligence having fun. So mix it up. Think about things through different perspectives. And then, and this I think is critical, stop, have a break, go for a walk, leave the project, the document, your laptop, whatever you're working on. And this is a bit kind of, you know, fluid in terms of my recommendation. How long does it take? What do you need to do? That's difficult to answer, but you need your brain to shift state. So I use walking around my local park, Victoria Park, as my easiest yeah. access point to a kind of rapid change in my brain state. But again, there's a, an abundance of sort of psychological research or the history of psychology, I suppose, that we attribute to good ideas coming in people's sleep. The periodic table is one. The structure of a benzene atom is another. And that's why, because brain states have shifted. And so that, my friend, is how or some of the ways you can become more creative. Yeah, there's, there's two things there that I do, I suppose, that touch on what you've said. One is, if I was writing something that's difficult, I would put it down and go out for a run down the canal near where I live. And then I find, you know, it's a more energy when I sit back down at the desk. Or the other thing is if I read, you know, a, a second or third draft before I go to sleep, and then uh, the next morning I might wake up and uh, if I was having trouble with a chapter or a paragraph in a chapter, it's a bit easier to fix it the next morning than, you know, plugging away at it late into the night. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? When there's this kind of, we are so accustomed to describing our work in terms of the amount of hours we put into it. And at some point, not only do you get a diminishing return, but even a negative return, I think, where, you know, almost with creativity in particular, you get to a point where the more you try and solve the problem, the more you inhibit the answer. And your example of kind of really processing stuff, right? You've done some writing and then you almost need to delegate it to your unconscious mind to form the associations, to make sense of it, to kind of join the dots, I suppose. And then your fresh brain comes back after a sleep. And much of the top line work has 
been done for you, which is, I mean, that's really kind of working smarter, isn't it? When you're doing your work literally in your sleep. So one theme in your book is about the role of technology and creativity. Right. How would you recommend somebody manages their digital habits so that they can focus when they need to focus and they can think of ideas when they need to think of ideas? Well, the word manage, I think, sums it all up. And that perhaps prompts a question, how much do we manage our relationship with our tech? There's a potentially a very long answer here, and I'm conscious that we we don't have all day. I think that, you know, I might ask the listeners some questions just off the top of my head, things that tend to come up. You know, did you check your phone before you got out of bed this morning? Yeah. Right. Are you still on a device in the last 60 minutes before you go back to bed? How many times do you think you unlock your phone on a typical day? And whatever your answers are, is that behavior you'd recommend to someone you loved, someone whose well-being was your responsibility? And also, is it any coincidence that you find it hard to switch off? So, you know, your brain's, well, do you know what? Let's upgrade it. Your attention, how you use your attention, what you choose to focus on, and how ultimately you direct your mind without going too over the top is basically the only real tool you have, not just in terms of writing, but just as a human being. And if that's true, to what degree are we intentional? To what degree do we manage? So I suppose some top tips, and again, without wanting to kind of immediately shift to here are my you know practical advice, because I think that everyone needs to make their own sense of this. But I think notifications and alerts for most people, most of the time are entirely unnecessary and are yeah. the single greatest reason why we can't focus, we can't switch off, and we start to notice worrying correlations with use of technology and our mental health, which, you know, mental health is pretty non-negotiable, whether you want to write, be creative, be productive, or execute in any sort of regard. So I think our relationship with our mobile phones needs proper re-examination. Get your phone out of your bedroom, for one, because that will remove the temptation in the morning and remove the temptation in the evening. Turn your notifications off throughout the course of the day. And what that should do is start to make your use of your phone just more deliberate. When you are working, so whether you're, it doesn't really matter what you're working on, again, notifications off and this now when you probably need them off your desktop or your other primary device as well. So if your email beeps, buzzes, or even something visual top right corner, if that happens every time someone wants to get in touch with you, I think you have a problem. Um, And I don't mean an emotional problem. I mean, you have a massive inhibitor to any forms of creative or productive output. So, you know, try to create the conditions. This is the goal. Create the conditions where you can create depth of focus that you can sustain for, well, go for an hour. I mean, I think minimum. You've discussed the Pomodoro technique, haven't you? I, I noticed in one of your episode you're yeah yeah i had francesco cerillo we interviewed right. for an episode recently so at least 25 minutes right i mean anyone yep. with the exception of you know emergency physicians firefighters and new parents i think can last 25 minutes without the world the outside world being able to demand their attention when they want it i mean that's the kind of the question we're asking if someone wants your attention who should choose when they get it now most people realize the answer must be them to get any sort of productive work done. And if that is true, there is a natural kind of correlate to that, which is all notifications need to go off. Yeah, like I say, there's a, there's a big, big chat around this. The other question as well that often 
is met with quite sheepish yeses is do you find yourself watching tv or netflix or whatever equivalent that we now have but your yeah. mobile your mobile phone is still in your hand and all certainly guilty of that right i mean to be honest, i'm i you know i won't pretend i'm perfect but yeah 80 90% of people will say yeah of course and it's like my goodness think back to the old school when we only had books and printed media you know the equivalent really is from your brain's perspective and really from a decision making perspective the equivalent is having one book in your left hand but it's not very compelling so you've got another book or a magazine in your right hand i mean it just seems bizarre and it really is now the thing there we talk about brain training neuroplasticity right your brain is a muscle it responds to your environment and in particular how you use it now that is exciting and it's empowering what people are doing when they are repeatedly shifting their attentional gaze from TV to phone, or let's face it, probably even from document to email inbox, same thing really, as you continue and repeatedly shift your gaze, you are training your brain to be distracted. So it's really yeah. no surprise that the brain becomes ever less good at sustaining your attention because it's just done ever less. So this stuff, like I say, I feel that this conversation is becoming urgent. Whether we talk about workplace productivity, we talk about personal well-being, we talk about the well-being of you know kids and future generations, we talk about our attention, our problem-solving as a culture. This, yeah, warrants re-examination. Now, everyone listening to this today, I think, would be well-served in spending just five minutes thinking, do you know what? What would I recommend to someone that I did care about? one change could I make starting today, just based on some of the things I've mentioned? Well, I'm always telling the, the kids to turn off notifications on their phone because they're bad for them. I think they're bad for all of us. I mean, they, they create yeah. by design a kind of fight or flight response. They demand attention and, and then it trains us not only to be distracted, but actually to be kind of emotionally dependent on this dopamine fix, which again is, is kind of addiction by design. It's, it's dangerous. Yeah. And have, have you, do you have any thoughts on you mentioned the Pomodoro technique and training your brain. Have you any thoughts on binaural beats or using white noise to get into a kind of a state of flow for, for 30 or 60 minutes? Yeah. So for listeners that don't know about binaural beats, the kind of top line concept is I mentioned alpha state, right? The idea that your brain wave frequencies change over the course of a day and your brain states measured by brain wave frequencies will be more or less useful for different types of cognitive output. Okay, so can you play your brain a particular frequency with a goal of it in training to that frequency? So if I wanted my brain to shift to alpha state, that's let's say eight hertz or eight cycles per second, could I play my brain eight hertz and it change over time? Now, one challenge is the human ear can only hear from 20 hertz up. So you need to do this clever trickery with, you know, a different tone in your left and right ear. So you can generate an eight hertz tone in your brain. You can do that with success. The challenge is when you really get empirical, what does the literature say around the efficacy of it affecting your brainwave frequencies? And the jury is still a little bit out. In terms of the research, there does seem to be a case where the sleeping brain can be playing some frequencies, theta in particular. So now we're looking between four and seven hertz. And that may have application for facilitating learning while we sleep. That's pretty cool. In terms of my own experience, I mean, again, as a musician that then turned into brain, this is something I was fascinated by 
probably 15 years ago and I make my own binaural beat frequencies actually I do. All right. okay. yeah what I have done I mean it's not something I use very regularly and I have found with certain again alpha so between eight and ten hertz I yeah. do find it becomes facilitative in helping me shift state and some of the artifacts I suppose the things that you might notice and you might have noticed this Brian when you were being hypnotized how dissociative it becomes and how your sense of your physical body starts to reduce now that doesn't sound you know that's might sound quite hippie but it happens all the time right as you're reading a good book the weight of the book becomes less apparent because you're focused on the story so our attention focuses on one thing always to the exclusion of other things so losing the sense of your body actually happens all the time you know bring your attention to your feet suddenly your attention of your feet has increased so listening to alpha i did notice that my sense of my hands as physical objects would reduce in terms of what did it do to my brain state or my subsequent cognitive performance obviously you know sample of one very difficult to get empirical in terms of my sort of subjective awareness. I find generally that I certainly don't feel I can work while listening to the tones. So it's always a goal of listening to the tones and then using subsequently okay. the state that it generates. And again, I tend to find that if there is an effect, it's fairly short lived. Yeah. But I think, you know, like all this sort of stuff, have a go. I don't see any risks in it like there might be with other sort of techniques that people use in terms of things like nootropics you know smart drugs is a pretty safe way to experiment with your mind and with your consciousness i think that if you really want to get good at shifting brain state and really mastering your mind attention consciousness then that's where i'd recommend meditation mindfulness and these kind of much more well more ancient techniques and practices that enable you to really examine the nature of well consciousness and the, the experienced mind Yes, yeah, so I've experimented with binaural beats, but I personally, I prefer using um, ambient music or white noise. Like, for example, there's a great album by Joe Baker on Spotify. It's just Rainfall. Oh, nice. So I've been listening to that with noise-cancelling headphones. Ah, well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's not something I've explored, but certainly there's research about, you know, the background cafe noise for example how that can be really useful for yeah. some people and it's just the difference between having complete absence of sound which doesn't really happen because there's always these little spikes as a car goes past or there's a site you know, i live in london so there's an abundance of traffic noise and just unpredictable auditory stimuli if you have a bed albeit low white noise was the, the kind of perfect i suppose example white and pink noise you're providing a bed that somehow eliminates these spikes of activity and consequently gives a kind of almost a blanket of safety in a sense that would make sense for, for a lot of people to to work it's funny a lot of people ask me you know how does music affect one's productivity and it's entirely subjective for someone like myself who spent decades writing producing music really any music on my brain i've trained to be hyper attentive to that so I'm analyzing the hi-hats and the kick drum and I'm thinking about the, you know, the compression on the bass guitar. And so I find it very hard to focus properly, certainly on, you know, executive tasks, the difficult stuff with any music at all. But there'll be just as many people who find certain playlists or as you do, ambient, you know, textural beds enormously useful, partly just, as I said, because it helps eliminate background unwanted stuff. So you've created a couple of courses in your academy, Phil, based on your book. Would you be able to tell listeners about them? Yeah, interesting. So the book 
I wrote was kind of a bit of a bit of everything. You know, like I said, I've helped people or I help people improve their productivity, their creativity, their resilience. And the book was really an exercise in going, well, look, do you know what? What a nice project to do. I was asked to do it. So I just thought, well, yeah, why not? The course that I've created, the Working Smarter program, is taking the best bits, helping people improve their focus, improve their prioritization, and basically trying to share what is the science of getting eight hours work done in just six hours. So it's less of the resilient stuff, but instead really trying to equip people with a toolkit to help them get clarity on their goals and their objectives, both life and career to really master their prioritization. One of the problems of us being perpetually so busy, as we seemingly all are, is some things become ever harder. Prioritizing your work, prioritizing your life. I find it hard to focus. I find it hard to switch off. So it's really a digital program solving all of those problems, giving people better access to their productive brain, I suppose, and ultimately giving them the science to working smarter. So yeah, it's up online. Where should listeners go if they, if they want to learn more about you or your course? Well, go to the website. That's the best place. So www, of course, brainworkshops, brainworkshops, all one word, .co.uk. And from there, you'll see lots of videos, lots of free content, meditation audio as well. And if you click on the Academy um, tab, that will also take you to the online learning. And there's the portal that you can access all of that stuff too. Yeah, I'd recommend your videos. I was watching a few before our interview. Nice. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearitertoday.com forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.